Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. Well, we are studying together Paul's letter to the Colossians with a particular view of looking at areas of worship, of adoration, of the public worship that we are doing here, as well as other aspects of our devotion. Um, One of the things that we regularly do, of course, is to uh, pray together in the morning uh, directly from some passages of Scripture. Not a new idea, of course. The church for so many centuries in uh, various liturgies, uh, praying back uh, God's word to him, personalizing it in a variety of ways. Uh, Also, there's this wonderful book by Matthew Henry called, uh, oh boy, uh, sorry, uh, uh, what is it again? A Method for Prayer. Thank you so much. Really taught me so much about praying. Um, I would say taught me how to pray, but I think I'm still a student of prayer, Prayer so has helped me as a student, um, where he basically does just this. He, go, he goes through passage after passage after passage, bringing together all kinds of things from all over the Bible, and um, making, uh, making very biblical prayers. Uh, it's not just that we should be able to pray better, but that we should know the Lord better. The Spirit who has inspired these words for us has also, uh, in, these, in these words, given to us priorities, teaching our desires, directing our hearts. And so it is that I'd like to look with you this morning. Back in Colossians chapter 1, I'd like to look with you um, at uh, Paul's prayer and its connection with the glories of Christ. Uh, joining together that the Lord is great and greatly to be praised that uh, these truths about him have a match in how we should pray through him. Let's read together from Colossians chapter 1. I'll be looking at uh, 1, starting in verse 9. For this reason also, since the day we heard it, we do not cease to pray for you and ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might, according to his glorious power for all patience and long-suffering, with joy, giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness, and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created for him, excuse me, through him and for him, And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. Let us pray. Our Father, not only in our prayers, but in our desires and in our very lives, as we fulfill those passions within us, we pray that Christ would be preeminent and that he would again reveal to us the glory of the invisible God. We ask it in his name. Amen. Amen. We love and adore and worship a great king, one who is worthy to be loved with all of our heart and soul and strength and mind. As the scripture says, the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. 
These things are joined together. As one great scholar said, the knowledge of God does not consist in frigid speculation, but it carries worship along with it. You know him as he is, you will worship him as you ought. Knowing God, is it just an intellectual exercise? It is that which ravishes and draws out our hearts. And so for true worship to take place, we have to know God as he is. We cannot worship him and serve him as we ought until we do. And so Paul begins his letter to the Colossians, as he so often does, setting forth the great things of God and the glory of Jesus Christ. It's very important because so many people in the world today are starving, starving for the greatness of Christ. They may not not understand that this is the root spiritual problem, but this is the diagnosis of their unsatisfying worship and their unsatisfying lives. That is the problem, and Jesus is the answer. At the beginning of his letters, therefore, Paul not only opens these things up, but goes from thanksgiving to petition, as he does here, and he prays that the Colossians might continue on this course that they have begun as followers of Christ. No new direction, you notice, and he's very clear about that, especially in the second chapter, as we've seen, but rather that they dig deep and continue to follow in that which they have received and to know the one whom they met at the beginning. And so... So it is that uh, the prayer that we are uh, introduced to here in chapter 9, although it has so many petitions, many more than I'm going to be able to consider with you this evening, begins with a prayer for for knowledge and spiritual wisdom and understanding of the knowledge of God's will and that we should be ever-increasing in the knowledge of God. Many other important things are listed in this prayer, And, of course, we have plenty of other important things to pray about as well. But it's this matter of knowing the Lord and what that has to do with prayer that is our study this evening. In one sense, prayer is the simplest thing in the world. People everywhere have been talking to God from the beginning with very little in the way of instruction or method. People have praised him, even cursed him and begged him and bargained with him, Uh, because it is in our nature to speak, and so to speak to God. So prayer, in that sense, is the simplest thing in the world. But prayer is, of course, much more than just talking to God. Prayer is an expression, or I think even better, a reflection of our hearts. What do we have to say? What do we believe about God and his will, and his purposes in the world, and how that relates to our needs, our neighbor's needs. Do we know our real problems? We feel many pains. Do we know what is truly the cause? Do we know what is valuable and worth asking for? If we do, then our prayers reflect this. If we don't, our prayers reflect this. And so we see that prayer is not just a matter of earnest and familiar talking to God, as one person put it. It, It's also about having right thoughts of God and expressing them appropriately. Well, what is prayer? Uh, Once Dwight Moody uh, was on a tour in the United Kingdom, and uh, he visited a local grade school in Scotland. He began with a rhetorical question, 
and it was a speech that he had given many times, he began, what is prayer? He didn't expect an answer, of course. It was just a question to start the talk. But to his astonishment, hundreds of hands went up. He didn't know what to do. It never happened before. He just called on a lad in front who promptly stood up and said, prayer is an offering up of our desires unto God for things agreeable to his will in the name of Christ with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of his mercies. Sat down. Moody, Moody was dumbstruck. What, what, what is going on? And then it dawned on him, Scotland, the Shorter Catechism. Every student in Scotland knew the Shorter Catechism by heart. And Moody said, son, be thankful you were born in Scotland. <laughs> all right. We serve a God who invites us to cast all our cares upon him. All of our cares, for he cares for us. Jesus teaches us to pray for our daily bread. We, we do so rightly. We pray for and intercede for every need. But I ask you as we begin, where is the prayer for the great things? The things that are excellent, the things that are the best things, the most needful things, the things that fill the apostles' prayer letter after letter. You know, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And the more that you grow spiritually, the more that you will desire and long for and therefore pray for these deeper needs and blessings and growth. And this is one way that the prayers of the Bible are so helpful to us and why we seek to integrate them into our service as we do. The prayers of the Apostle Paul are simply a beautiful expression of Christian maturity in prayer. Most of his letters includes a prayer at the beginning for his readers. His prayers are profound, affectionate, and eloquent. They are a guide to us on our journey of faith as well as in praying. Paul's heart is fixed upon these excellent things that are true, important, indispensable, and teach us to consider our concerns and longings in light of other essential needs. It's too easy to fall into praying for the same old things and in the same old way. We can easily drift into praying lists of requests about sickness, anxiety, wisdom, decision-making, whatever. Fair enough, those, those things are needful. But when that becomes our only concerns, we need to go back. And that's what we're going to be doing this evening. Praying scripture helps us remember what's important. People, by the way, in the Bible itself, prayed through scripture or often included passages of scripture in their prayers. For example, the apostles are threatened in Acts chapter 4. And what do they do? They, they, they pray Psalm 2. Uh, why did the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? They make a few adjustments to the psalm, as we do, in order to customize it, in order to uh, make it fit their particular situation. Um, they uh, uh, pray it out and add some very specific uh, requests onto the end, which are fulfilled. Or in Nehemiah chapter 9, where they, where, uh, they quote Exodus chapter 34, as they pray, you are a God, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, etc. They, 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 they have the passage of Moses open, at least those who are leading, and they are praying that passage appropriately and applying it to their situation. 
not just in corporate uh, life, but of course the Lord himself makes very, very frequent use of Scripture in such a variety of ways. Uh, and so we are to learn to do exactly as, as they have done. These, were, these things written for our, insp- written for our uh, instruction by the inspiration of the Holy Scripture I certainly don't want to think that every prayer we pray here has to be right from Scripture, but I never want any passage, excuse me, I never want any Sunday to go by where we haven't prayed through some Scripture as the saints of old likewise did. Okay, so uh, try, to, try to keep it up and have a variety of prayers, but at least do some of what they did. So we are to learn from the Bible, not just our beliefs about God, but also our desires from God. What should we ask for, for ourselves and others? Many things, even in this short prayer from chapter 1, verses 9 through 12. But once again, the emphasis that I'd like to bring before you is the, uh, the first two verses, praying, not ceasing to ask for you to be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. You might walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Well, why is he praying for spiritual understanding uh, and um, an increase in their knowledge? Well, I think it's very obvious to us that there's a big difference between having something and enjoying it. Certainly a difference between knowing the truth and knowing the power of the truth. Paul says, in all these glorious blessings that are ours in Christ, we have to admit that for, for most of us, even though all, all these wonderful, glorious things are true that we read about, we experience them far less enjoyably and wonderfully than we ought. Paul is not giving him so much new information in Colossians chapter 1, I judge, as, as he is um, reminding them, pressing on to them, these glorious things, and saying, I'm praying for you that you would be able to have a deeper knowledge, understanding, and to grow in God's knowledge. So let me give you an example. Uh, For example, we've been forgiven in Christ. We we read that uh, here in chapter 1. He he mentions that, that uh, um, he's made peace through the blood of the cross and... um, reconciled us to himself and so forth? Fine. Okay. Well, we are forgiven. Do we feel forgiven? We may not be living as though we have been forgiven an enormous debt because, you see, as Jesus teaches elsewhere, it's not too difficult to forgive people small debts when we remember and recognize God has forgiven us an enormous debt. The truth is we don't often live as we ought because our perspective is not what it should be. It's not news to these Colossians that they've been forgiven by Christ and his blood, but he prays for them. He does not cease to pray for them that they should have a wisdom and spiritual understanding and grow in the knowledge of God. We may know and believe certain things to be true likewise, but we may not feel the weight of these things or the joy of these things in our heart. We're forgiven, but we are not living in conscious enjoyment of the freedom, the the glorious liberty of the children of God, as he puts it elsewhere, that we have received no less the blood of Jesus Christ to earn our salvation. Well, it's wonderful when we are singing hymns about that matter, I suppose. Sometimes it's more wonderful, sometimes it's less wonderful. 
but it should be more wonderful to us all the time. How real is God to you this day? How much of this has become part of your life? How convinced are you of the things Jesus has said? How much anticipation do you have every day of what he has promised? How much are you daily assured of his presence and love? Do you live every day in the light of the fact that you're going to appear before him at the end of your days and give an account for the deeds done in the body? And hear his well-done, good and faithful servant. In the midst of trouble, should there not still be a spring in your step and a song in your heart? Because despite all the things, the troubles that we talked about this morning, the storm going on, we are owners of the unsearchable riches of Christ. Are we living as though without him we can do nothing? Or that with, without uh, his strength being made perfect in weakness, everything is doomed to fail? Or that he ever lives to intercede for you? Or that he's coming again? Are these things real to you? Reminds me of a story a man told uh, his, uh, his brother-in-law never liked to wear the seatbelt in the car. Um, when he was a driver, when he was a passenger, just didn't like the seatbelt. Uh, one day, his, one day he picked him up from the airport, and the uh, first thing he did, zip, click. And the uh, minister said, what got into you? And uh, said, oh, uh, yeah, last week I had to go visit my work, co-worker in the hospital. He uh, had 100 stitches in his face. He went, went through a windshield in an accident. I uh, said, oh. But he said, but you knew, didn't you? I mean, you knew that could happen to you. He said, yeah, but now I really know it. Yeah. Um, we know these things. Paul says, I continually pray that you would really know it in wisdom, in spiritual understanding, in a growing knowledge of the Lord. If you want to think more deeply about these things, Jonathan Edwards is a great student of this experience and knowledge of the truth. He writes at one point, there's a difference between having an opinion that God is holy and gracious and having a sense of the loveliness and beauty of that holiness and grace on the heart. Just as there is a rational difference, excuse me, a difference between having a rational judgment that honey is sweet and having a sense of that sweetness. Paraphrase that for you a few weeks ago. Do you see the difference? It's one thing to have a hundred people tell you, you've got to taste honey, it's so sweet, and you're sure that it is. You have a rational judgment. You, you're, you are convinced. They've never steered you wrong. So many people would have no reason to lie. Everyone can tell you that honey is sweet, and you're going to believe them. But then you taste it on your tongue, and you have a sense of the sweetness. It's a different experience, is it not? That's what makes all the difference. And so it is when we taste and see that the Lord is good. Paul is able to teach only so much, which he does in this letter. But he prays, and we should pray, because these are the great things in life. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Taste and see that he is good. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk of the word, now that you have tasted, tasted, that the Lord is good. You need a taste, a sense, a savor. That is answered in, in prayer. We may well know that we are God's children adopted in Christ Jesus, but the enjoyment of that fact, that we should be children of such a heavenly Father, our enjoyment, I know, is far less than it ought to be. 
and we don't call upon God as our Father the way that we would like to. We pray for God to open people's hearts to know him and to trust him as they need to do, and that's good. But Paul says to this church, ever since I heard of your faith, verse 4, ever since I heard of your faith in Christ and love for the saints, the hope that is laid up, faith, hope, and love, notice again, Ever since I I heard that you believed, he's praying for believers. I haven't stopped praying for you believers to be increasing in the knowledge of God. So you can read a book. You can read the Bible, the best of books. I frequently come across people that have read the Bible through several times and haven't gotten a thing out of it. Uh, There was a barista here in in, uh, Blacksburg I used to talk to a good bit. He'd read through the Bible four times. He said he never got much out of it. The last time he said he enjoyed it the most because he just thought I'd read it as a story. And then there's this retired guy in Charlotte that we know from our old church. He retired from his job, a nice successful career. He decided that in his retirement, he'd like to spend some, some, some time just reading the classics, things he'd never read before. And after a while, he got around to the Bible. And he was just going to read it like any other work of fiction, a, a great classic that he had never picked up. That's all he meant to do. And he was utterly brought to his knees. And he was soundly converted and became a dear disciple of Christ. And he joined my brother-in-law's church in Charlotte. And the rest is history. What's the difference? They both had the same book. They gave the same knowledge. Well, Paul knows he could tell them the things all day long. That's not enough. The difference between picking up a book and finding an interesting story or finding eternal life to know God and Jesus Christ to me have sent, that is a gift from on high. Flesh and blood does not reveal that to any man, but my Father in heaven, says Jesus. And even the difference between a stagnant Christian and a growing Christian is that a stagnant Christian has only an intellectual belief about God and his holiness and glory and sovereignty and wisdom and so forth. And uh, some of us talked this morning about People that sometimes are new or immature, reformed believers, they get in this cage stage, they they know the doctrines of grace, and they want to beat them into everybody else's head. I want to tell you about grace, grace, grace. Mm. Well, something is at a disconnect here. The growing Christian has an increasing sense of such sovereign grace in his heart and life. And again, with Edwards can say, I just love to ascribe nothing other than absolute sovereignty to God. Such a great thing that it is. So maybe you say today, I know God's in control, but I'm worried. You know it rationally. But it's not affecting your life. You don't have a sense of it. And we go back to this passage and are reminded this comes through prayer. You say, I, 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 I don't know what I'm going to do. I know that God's sovereign. I know that he's good, but I'm still worried. And you see... It's the sense of the power of the truth that you need. The fundamental problem of living in this world is that these real things that Paul's praying for are not as real as they should be to the heart. And meanwhile, the other troubles and other things in our life are a lot closer and a lot more real. So this is what we need, that we should know the Lord that we should know, know, know God to be increasing in the knowledge of God, he says. 
with all wisdom and spiritual understanding in his will. Don Carson has a lovely book on Paul's prayers called The Call to Spiritual Reformation. I highly commend it to you. I'd like to just read you a little sample of something in this chapter of his. Uh, by the way, he doesn't have much of what I've already told you. Uh, uh, Carson takes another line, but it's a very good line, and here's where it comes together. Is there anything that our own generation more urgently needs than this? Some of us have chased every fad, scrambled aboard every bandwagon, adopted every gimmick, and pursued every encounter with, me- with the media. Others of us have rich- richly, excuse me, rigidly cherished every tradition, determined to change as little as possible, worshipped what is aged simply because it is aged. But where are men and women whose knowledge of God is as fresh as it is profound, whose delight in thinking God's thoughts after him ensures their study of Scripture is never merely intellectual and self-distancing, whose desire to please God easily outstrips residual and corrupting desires to shine in public? People cannot live by bread and jacuzzis alone. We desperately need meditative and reflective dependence on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The need takes on painful urgency when we discover that even within our churches, let alone the nation at large, there are rapidly declining standards of the most basic biblical knowledge. True, basic Bible knowledge does not ensure the kind of knowledge of God's will that Paul has in mind, but the ignorance of the Bible, the focal place where God has so generously disclosed his will, pretty well ensures that we will not be filled with the knowledge of God's will that consists in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Small wonder, then, that this is something for which we must constantly pray. It is to our great shame if we have not constantly been praying along these lines. Few needs more urgently demand our intercession before our Heavenly Father than this one. The rapid growth of many churches, say, in sub-Saharan Africa or Latin America, humbling and thrilling as it may be, will be jeopardized unless it is accompanied by a deepening knowledge of God's will. And in the Western world, where so much of the church continues to squander its remarkable heritage in the grace of God, the knowledge of God declines while our fascination with techniques and fads increases. Are these not reasons to join Paul in his prayer that God might fill believers with the knowledge of his will? Yes. Well, one more thing before we conclude. Uh, Basically, a sermon of one and a half points. That was my one long point to you. My half point uh, I'll mention before we conclude. He prays for a knowledge of God's will. You say, yes, that's exactly what I need. We we need to know... uh, whom we should marry, or what career we should pursue, and what choice we should make. Well, fair enough, and you should seek the Lord to lead you in every step of your life. But understand that that's not what this passage is saying when it says this uh, knowledge of the will of the Lord. We shouldn't think of the Lord's will primarily in terms of our choices and our needs, which can so often just become a simple way of self-centeredness. Worse, it distracts from the real concern. For when the Bible speaks about the knowledge of the Lord's will, almost uniformly, it means that we should know how to obey what God has commanded. 
Psalm 143, teach me to do your will, for you are my God and your spirit. May it lead me on level ground. Doing the will of God, as the psalm describes, is the same as doing what God has decreed. David does not encourage us to find God's will. It's already been revealed. Instead, he is concerned that he be taught how to do that will. Teach me, it doesn't mean teach me the will, but teach me how to do it. Uh, or Paul, when he writes to the Romans, don't conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you be able to test and approve God's good, pleasing, and perfect will. So it is. Uh, Paul writing to the Thessalonians elsewhere, this is the will of God, your sanctification. A little later, be, rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances. This is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. Paul prays not only that they should be growing in the knowledge of God, but also be filled with the knowledge of his will, consisting in what is right in the service of God. These desires of prayer are then to take root in our lives as we would desire to work out these matters. As we pray for power, for strength, for long-suffering with joy, to be fruitful in every good work, and so forth. These things are not just matters for prayer. These things are the will of God for our lives. And so, as we pray that we should be filled with the knowledge of God's will in spiritual wisdom and understanding, it is namely walking worthy of him, fully pleasing him, fruitful in good works, strengthened with all might, uh, according to his glorious power, you see. This is how they were going to withstand the pressures of the surrounding pagan culture and how they're going to be renewed by the transforming of their minds. If they have these new desires, if they have these as their prayers, then they will live these out in their lives. Uh, oh, Lord, give wisdom. Well, in conclusion, the Holy Spirit is not giving us new information, I think, in the passage I read to you. Indeed, Jesus says repeatedly, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and tell you the things to come. <clears throat> he will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. He's not come to bring new information, and certainly Paul in chapter 2 reminds them in so many ways, uh, you are to commit yourself to what you have received in Jesus. It's nothing new that he brings before them. He's not bringing new information, but he is praying for this information to become new, that we should really believe it, that we should really know it. Our fundamental problem is that the world is too real. God is too far. We know that God will care for us. We know that he's the most powerful, wonderful father in the world, and we are still worried. And we can say, who can help us in our weakness? We read, read the, uh, the words of our Lord Jesus this morning for peace in the midst of the storm. And yet we say, Lord, I, I need that peace worked out into our lives. It is one thing to know that it is our birthright. It is another thing to enjoy it. Let us then pray that God, the Holy Spirit, would make these precious possessions to be all the more real, that the things of God may be our uh, true joy all the day. Let us pray together. Our Father, we thank you for such words that are fixed upon 
the things that are above, where Christ is, and that these words are to us, instruction, a mirror by which we may examine ourselves, and a text by which we may instruct 